When we think of the law, in both its purpose and its practice, we often think of persuasive arguments, enveloped in reason, rhetoric, and logic. We think facts and hard evidence, testimony of flesh and blood witnesses, and zero tolerance for nonsense. But the law is a mysterious body, and it exists solely to respond to the happenings of society, and in doing so, becomes a servant to its whims. In this podcast, we explore extraordinary cases with spiritual or otherwise bizarre themes, proving that fact is truly stranger than fiction. Sometimes there are trials, other times there are trials by ordeal. A quick note about this podcast. This is part two of a two-part episode discussing the sensationally spiritual legal controversy of Jap Heron. If you have not listened to part one, I encourage you to go back and listen to it before starting this episode. The discussions in this podcast contain explorations of American copyright law, but are in no way intended to be construed as legal advice in any form. Thank you for listening. My name is Sarah Arena, and this is Trial by Ordeal. Mitchell Kennerly was controversial, eclectic, fascinating, and very English. Born in England in 1878, Kennerly was exposed to the kind of sophistication and culture that Americans find irresistibly attractive and exotic. Mitchell traveled to New York at 18 and came to be known as a publishing prodigy. He had an affinity for art and literature, but also the unusual and even the scandalous. Mitchell was once arrested on charges of sending a morally objectionable manuscript through the mail, but was later acquitted. Mitchell craved variety and risk, so when he was approached with the prospect of publishing Emily Hutchings Grant's spiritually transcribed novel of Samuel Clemens' work, he savored the idea, but anticipated, and with good reason, that a lawsuit from Twain's publishers would inevitably ensue. To help explain this fact, here is attorney Scott Orsini. One of the interesting things about litigation is that the parties through their attorneys can stipulate to certain facts and the court has to accept them as true. So for this case, if it were to have gone to trial, the attorneys could have stipulated that the book was written or dictated by Samuel Clemens as Mark Twain through a seance or Ouija board posthumously, and the court would have had to accept that as a fact. Meanwhile, the press was thoroughly enjoying themselves, reveling in the unavoidable sensation offered by the subject matter. The New York Times particularly enjoyed speculating on the various novelties such a trial could have in store. One writer commented, tongue-in-cheek, on the case, It is possible that the Ouija board will be made to perform in court, and that the shade of Mark Twain, or what purports to be his spirit, will undertake to confound Mark Twain, the unbeliever. That Mrs. Hutchings intends to get into communications with that very important witness is an assured point. Now, the plaintiffs had several options available for causes of actions to choose from and each one was accompanied with its own unique set of intellectual acrobatics necessary to weave and bob around the various challenges of having a spirit at the center of controversy. To explain, 
Here's Scott Orsini again. To me, it's really interesting that Harper and Brothers sued for an injunction because there are a couple different ways that could have gone. As part of my preparation for this, I actually drafted up a fake complaint as if it took place here in the jurisdiction where I live. Um, and I included all the elements of an injunction. And in the normal course of events, when someone violates someone's copyright um, or otherwise causes a, a breach of a contract for exclusivity, which is really what this was, uh, Harper and Brothers had the exclusive rights to publish Mark Twain's works and, and use his uh, name and image uh, to, you know, sell books by him. Uh, that's a contract between them and, Mar and Samuel Clemens and also later the, the Clemens estate. So when someone violates that, many times there's not an amount of money that can be that would compensate somebody. So you get an injunction. An injunction is where someone is restrained from doing something. In other words, when, you when people talk about getting a restraining order, it's the same as an injunction. And in this case, what Harper and Brothers was trying to do was to get the court to order that not only uh, can, can they not sell the book, but, then they, but to take all the books and never allow them to be sold because there would be no way to calculate the damage to the name Mark Twain, which at that point was an asset of Harper and Brothers. And so if you can't calculate the money damages, that's one of the elements of getting an injunction. And that was the fake complaint that I drew up, and it was kind of interesting to, to, to plug the numbers in uh, and, and the facts in as if I were actually doing the complaint. Um, the other issue, that, but the interesting part was, is that Mark Twain was not actually named in the novel, even though, or as the author, but they, but they put his picture. And because a contract with a publishing house, to a certain extent, is what we call a personal services contract, it kind of begs the question of whether the personal services contract survives someone, someone dying. Um, and if this lawsuit were brought today, I think that would be part of it. Um, my other research has shown, uh, mainly through some articles, that there were other potential causes of action. Uh, one of them was uh, invasion of privacy. And Invasion of privacy is a really interesting cause of action, and I've actually never done a invasion of privacy case, but I've researched it uh, because I've had clients uh, come up, uh, have some questionable things happen to them, and I looked up the invasion of privacy. Um, at the time, it was a very new area of law, and the idea is is that it invades your right to privacy if someone uses your image without your permission. So for example, if you're out at the beach and your picture is taken and all of a sudden your picture without your permission and that of, say that of your child appears on a billboard for a restaurant, well, they have a problem. Um, 
At the time, uh, no Missouri court, which apparently was where the lawsuit was filed, recognized the right of privacy of surviving death. Um, and at the time, they also uh, cited a case which used a Vassar College image, which was a, a woman's college, uh, and apparently it had a certain type of likeness that was a Vassar woman, where they sued someone for using the name in Vassar Chocolates and they, with, with a image of someone who appeared to be a, a graduate of Vassar, um, and they used, uh, there, there was a case that, that was a case that dealt with invasion of privacy, but also it was in the nature of libel, which libel is defamation of character. I'm not sure how they got there, um, but uh, there was some discussion of that. Um, they also talked about dilution of brand. So in other words, there's a bunch of Mark Twain novels that are well-known, have a certain reputation. This novel apparently was not very good, but yet the inference is it was written by Mark Twain, albeit posthumously. And so there'd be a cause of action for that as well. Um, all in all, it's a pretty interesting case. Um, I think the strongest point is the fact that they were using the, the inference that Mark Twain wrote it you know, I do know um, that you can't just take a character that someone else has written about and write about it to make money. I do realize now in the, the world of the internet today, we have this thing called fan fiction where people are allowed to write certain things and put them up on blogs, but I think there are certain uh, standards to go about that. Uh, I will close with, at one point, uh, my old law partner was involved in a website where, and this is back in 1998, where people could write novels and submit them, and then you could go on the website and read the first chapter, and if you liked the book, you could buy the whole novel. Uh, and this is before ebooks and all that stuff. Well, somebody wrote a novel and submitted it called The Return of McGarrett, and it totally slipped the author's mind that he took a copyrighted character from, I'm not sure which television network it was or which production company, but we all remember Hawaii Five-0, or at least some of us do, and, and just write a book about it and expect to not have a problem. Well, you can't just do that. You can get permission, um, but you can't do it on your own and expect not to be sued. So using that as our rule, um, Mr. Kennerly and... Uh, Ms. Hutchings uh, had a problem back then, and they would certainly have a problem now with trying to publish uh, the uh, Jap Heron book. If you had any doubt that Clemens himself would have argued to be relieved of his copyright post-mortem, you'd be right. Clemens was a fierce advocate for an immortal copyright, insisting that he made a good deal of money and would like his estate to collect those royalties in perpetuity. Clemens later walked back his expectations when he testified before Congress to advocate for a copyright to survive the author plus 50 years. Of course, today we know that standard to be 70 years. So with that evidence taken into consideration, it would be difficult to believe that he intended anyone but those legally entitled to his work to profit from his literary labors. 
So how does it all end? Well, it just kind of ends, and not nearly as spectacularly as it began. Sadly, before a Ouija board could be subpoenaed, or a medium paraded on the stand as an expert witness, Hutchings and Kennerly decided they didn't like their odds in court. And they conceded, rather anticlimatically, before the specter of Clemens saw trial. Emily and her publisher conceded their battle and destroyed all of the available copies of Jap Heron and agreed to surrender any further literary pursuits using the name or the image of Mark Twain. From there, Emily just kind of melts back into a life of literary mediocrity, only ever publishing one other novel, The Indian Summer. The story of Emily Grant Hutchings and Jap Heron faded into obscurity, only to be periodically poked and prodded by various curious legal scholars and paranormal enthusiasts. Though most of the copies were destroyed, Jap Heron did manage to gain its own brand of immortality, and today exists in the public domain, available for download and completely unencumbered by any copyright. In my research, I found the book Law and Magic by Christine Corcos particularly helpful. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of Trial by Ordeal. If you like this podcast, please remember to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. Please join us again next week for a special Halloween episode involving a ghost, a gun, and a fatal mistake. Special thanks to our resident legal expert, Scott Orsini. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Arena. <laughs>